If you would join me in Bible study this morning, please open up your Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy, the chapter 19. Chapter 19, verse 1 says, When the Lord your God has cut off the nations whose land the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess them and dwell in their cities and in their houses. This is a key. This lets you know when does this commandment need to be fulfilled. When you get into the land. So it's not one for in the wilderness. It's not one when you're outside of the land. This is something that applies in the land. And what do you see two times in verse 1? The Lord your God. Why does Moses need to repeat that in the same verse? Does he think they're going to forget who the Lord is? Yeah. Yeah, how quickly we tend to forget. So the emphasis is the Lord your God. The one who brought you out of Egypt. The one who led you through the wilderness. The one who fed you with manna from heaven. The one who brought water out of the rock. The one who protected you so that the clothes didn't grow old and the shoes continued to fit and didn't wear out. This is the Lord your God. What has the Lord done for them already? He's defeated Sihon. He's defeated Og, these giants. He's shown supernatural ability to protect them when they dwell in the shadow of his wings. So he's saying, maybe I'll bring it into the land I think maybe I can. No. He absolutely is going to do it. And when he does, then do they owe him a debt of gratitude? And how are they to show that gratitude? By worshiping him and him alone. By obeying him. Verse 2. You shall separate three cities for yourself in the midst of your land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess. Does that look like an error? Turn back to Numbers chapter 35 to verse 6. Numbers chapter 35, verse 6. It says, Now among the cities which you shall give to the Levites, you shall appoint six cities of refuge. Wait a minute. In Deuteronomy 19, is three cities of refuge. Where's the disconnect? One's across the Jordan. Three of them are on the west side of the Jordan. Three of them are on the east side of the Jordan. That's right. So when you come into the land, that's where they establish the three on the west side of the Jordan. So there is no disconnect. So verse 2, you shall separate three cities for yourself in the midst of your land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess. What else do you know about these three cities? Who lives in these three cities? Levites. Levites, that's the tribe that's separated unto the Lord to serve him in the tabernacle and later the temple. What do they also serve as in the cities of refuge? Priests, so they can teach the Torah, and as judges, which is what's important here for the cities of refuge. Hmm. 
Verse 3, you shall prepare roads for yourself. That is, there have to be nice roads from everywhere in Israel to these, what do we call these cities? Cities of refuge. Because when you accidentally kill someone, their relatives, the avenger of blood, is going to be so angry, so hot, that you need a way that you can escape quickly to the cities of refuge. Does that mean if you commit cold-blooded murder, you should run to a city of refuge and they'll protect you? No, let's read on. But it says, you shall prepare roads for yourself and divide into three parts the territory of your land, which the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, that any manslayer may flee there. In other words, the three cities of refuge can't be all bunched together. You divide the land in three parts, and one is in each of the three parts. So that there's a place you can get to quickly. When it says any manslayer may be there, that word in Hebrew is ratzechta, which is Hebrew word 7523. What does that word mean? It simply means one who kills a person. There's no decision yet whether it's been murder or whether it was an accident. That's what they determine in the city of refuge. So if a manslayer runs into the city, do they protect the, the manslayer? Yes. No. First, they have a trial. Okay, they defend them until they have the trial. But the point is, if you're guilty of first degree cold-blooded murder, running to a city of refuge is no help. They turn you back over. <laughs> they turn you back over. That's exactly right. So let's read on here. So any manslayer goes there to have the trial. Verse 4, and this is the case of the manslayer who flees there that he may live. That is, he may live until the trial. Which is where Bob was correct. They're going to protect him until the trial. What about the avenger of blood? Can they attend the trial? Yeah. Sure. Can they kill him before the trial? No. Okay. Says that he may live. Whoever kills his neighbor, what's that word? unintentionally but that's not what the Hebrew actually says the Hebrew says bivli da'at which means without knowledge you didn't know you were going to kill somebody and God's going to give us an example how that can happen but let me give you a modern example today although we don't have cities of refuge what would God consider murder versus an accidental killing suppose I'm out in the woods hunting for Bambi. I'm not going to be, it's hypothetical. But I'm hunting for Bambi. I see Bambi. I line up my shot, and the shot lands perfectly. But instead of using a soft point, I'm using a hard bullet, and it passes right through Bambi. Unbeknownst to me, there are campers at the bottom of the valley. I don't see them, brushes between me and them. I don't even know they're there. But the bullet strikes one and they die. Is that cold-blooded murder? No. That's an accidental killing. That's without knowledge. I didn't know that that was going to happen. So what do I do if this was the case back in ancient Israel with the cities of refuge? I run to the city of refuge and say, I didn't know. And they hold a trial. What do you have to present at trial? Evidence. Evidence. Witnesses. Who saw it? Okay. So verse 4. There's more to verse 4. And this is the case of the manslayer who flees there, 
that he may live. Whoever kills his neighbor unintentionally, but there's more to it. Not having hated him in time past. Suppose the campers at the bottom of the hill are my mortal enemies and I wish them dead. That throws in a little complication. Does that make it a little harder to decide that was just an accident and not intentional? Yeah, just one of the factors to be considered. So in verse 5, God's going to give us an example how in ancient Israel this could happen because believe me, they didn't have high-power rifles. Verse 5, it's when a man goes into the woods with his neighbor to cut timber. Why would they cut timber in those days? Firewood. Firewood. Yeah. Why would he take his neighbor? Needs some help pollen it, carrying it. Yeah, we'll split up the wood. And it says, and his hand swings a stroke with the axe to cut down the tree. And the head slips from the handle. The axe head comes off the handle. Did I mean that to happen? No. Did I know it was going to happen? No. And the head slips from the handle and strikes his neighbor so that he dies. He shall flee to one of these cities and live. What would a court of law in the United States do in a situation like this? Same thing. There'd be a trial. You present the evidence. They'd say, well, this was just an accident. You didn't know this was going to happen. Now, if he's standing between you and the tree when you swing the axe, that's going to be different. But in this case, it's clearly unintentional. And he didn't hate his neighbor because they tend to interchange the words for neighbor and friend in the scriptures. It says, he shall flee to one of these cities and live. Verse 6 says, lest. Meaning, what if he says, I'm not going. I know it was an accident. I don't need a trial. It says, lest the avenger of blood, while his anger is hot. What's the word avenger of blood in Hebrew? Goel. The same as the kinsman redeemer. So this avenger of blood is a near relative. Maybe the wife of the person who just died, or the son, or the brother. Lest the avenger of blood, while his anger is hot, pursue the man, slay and overtake him. Because the way is long, and kill him. That's why you have to divide the land into three parts, and there's a city of refuge in each part. So that you don't have to run so very long that the avenger of blood overtakes you and kills you. It says, though he was not deserving of death. So if that happens, the manslayer catches up to you and kills you. What has he done in the eyes of the Lord? He has shed innocent blood. We're going to have quite a discussion about innocent blood because it's going to keep coming up over the next few chapters. How does God feel about the shedding of innocent blood? How should every abortion provider in this country worry when they read these scriptures about the shedding of innocent blood? Mm. In deep trouble. So the exact phrase for avenger of blood is goel hadam. Hadam means the blood. So they could have said kinsman of blood. They could have said redeemer of blood. But avenger of blood just seems to fit our English understanding better. 
So again, verse 6, Thus the avenger of blood, while his anger is hot, pursued a manslayer and overtake him, because the way is long and kill him, though he was not deserving of death, since he had not hated the victim in time past. Notice there's two parts. It's not just unintentional, but it's also did not hate him in the past. So therefore, never take with you to the woods to cut down a tree, somebody you already hate, okay? <laughs> Verse 7. Therefore I command you, saying, you shall separate three cities for yourself. Now, if the Lord your God enlarges your territory, as he swore to your fathers, and gives you the land which he promised to give to your fathers... Did God promise to them just the land that today is called Israel? No. Did God promise land on the east side of the Jordan River? Yes, he did. Quite a bit of it. Will they actually settle some on the east side of the river and some on the west side of the river, meaning the Jordan? The answer is yes. So here's where number eight comes into effect. And it's not now, it's just and. If the Lord your God enlarges your territory, and he's about to, as he swore to your fathers and gives you the land which he promised to give to your fathers, and if you keep all these commandments and do them, which I command you today to love the Lord your God and to walk always in his ways, you shall add three more cities for yourself besides these three. So where are the other three cities? They're on the east side of the Jordan, in the place that we would call today the nation of Jordan. Is that uh, the first if in verse 8? Is that, is that if or is it when? Let me take a look real quick. It's em it's if. Okay. So Daniel's following along in the Hebrew. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, notice verse 9. And if you keep all these commandments and do them. What if they choose not to keep God's commandments and do them? Deals off. Is he going to give them the entire plot of land he promised? No. Not at the time. So why has Israel never had the entire plot of land that God said they would eventually possess? Because of disobedience. And disobedience based on lack of faith. How do we know? Let's go to book of Hebrews. That if in verse 9 is when. One in verse 8 is if. One in verse 9 is when. Yeah. Because there will come a time when Israel will keep the commandments and they will have all of the land that has been promised. But in Hebrews chapter 3, we learn a very important lesson. At least to me it's a very important. I hope it is to you too. We'll start in verse 16 of chapter 3 of the book of Hebrews. Uh-oh, I got four red circles out there. Let me see what they are. Oh, that was where are we? Okay. They got it. So verse 16, for who having heard rebelled? Having heard what? 
God's voice on Mount Sinai with their own ears. So who, having heard God's own voice, rebelled? It says, indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? What's the answer to that? All but Joshua and Caleb. Now with whom was he angry forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? These three verses, 17, 18, and 19, will make a three-step ladder. In verse 17, you find he's angry with those who what? Sinned. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So what does God mean by sin? They did not obey. Disobedience. Why did they not obey? That's verse 19. So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. They sinned by failing to obey. And they failed to obey because of unbelief. So sum the whole problem up in one word. Lack of what? Faith. Trust, faith, same thing. Back to Deuteronomy chapter 19. So in verse 8, it's truly if. In verse 9, it's when. Why does God use two different words? Will there come a time that Israel will be fully obedient to the Lord? Yes, there will. When they are fully obedient to the Lord, will they have all the land that was promised? The answer is yes. That's why it's not if, it's when. Because God's telling us it's going to come to pass. It's not an if, it's only a when. So in verse 9, if you keep all these commandments, I, all these commandments and do them, which I command you today, and what's the very first thing? To love the Lord your God. What does love have to do with keeping God's commandments? That's the motivation. Why would you keep commandments someone you don't love? That's the motivation. Give me a verse. John 14, 15. If you love me, comma, keep my commandments. Let's go up to John 14 because there's more than just verse 15. I like to quote John 14, 15 because, well, it helps you remember the Website address. <laughs> but beyond that, it says, If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper. Who's that helper we're talking about? The Holy Spirit. But it starts with an if. What if you don't keep the commandments? Does God promise the Holy Spirit anyway? He doesn't. Look at verse 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest my to him. Does Messiah say, oh, I don't care, don't keep my commandments, we'll love you anyway? Doesn't say that, does it? And look at verse 20. At that day, what day? And Lord, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. What's his relationship to the Father, he says? 
He does all that his father says that he's in the father. In John 10, verse 30, he says, I and the father are one. Verse 23 of the same chapter, John 14, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. Do you see a relationship? And we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. My words. What did Messiah say in Matthew 4? 4, man does not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Does this mean Messiah came to do away with God's words? No. Hmm. Got a question, by the way. Go ahead. Uh, verse sixteen brings up the the uh, the verse that reminds me that it says that when you are when you have accepted Yeshua as your Lord and Savior, it says that the Spirit bears witness that you are His. But it says that if you don't love Him and keep His commandments, then you don't have the Holy Spirit. You don't have the Holy Spirit bearing witness that you are His. Right. And what does the scripture say to do about the spirits? To test the spirits? Because not all spirits come from God, huh? Hmm. All right, let's go back to 1 John chapter 5. Because there are people who will say in John 14, we're talking about commandments Yeshua gave, not ones God gave. Despite the fact he says the words are my father's, not my own. But in 1 John 5, verses 2 and 3, it's hard to get past these words. By this we know that we love the children of God. When we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God. That we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. So these verses say if you claim to love God and you do not keep his commandments, are you being honest with yourself? It says no. Back to Deuteronomy chapter 19. Verse 10. Lest... This is why we add three more cities. Three cities that are on the other side of the river. Because how long does it take to cross the river if you're in a hurry? During the rainy season, it's not just a little trickle. The Jordan River can be very treacherous to cross. Isn't there a song about the Jordan River's deep and wide? In the rainy season, it's true. So verse 10, lest innocent blood be shed in the midst of your land, which the Lord your God is giving you as inheritance, and thus guilt of bloodshed be upon whom? Upon you. So if you do not establish the cities of refuge, and these innocent people get slain by the avenger of blood, who does God hold responsible? The nation. The nation. Does that mean God would actually judge the whole nation? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yipper. 
innocent blood. Let's take just a quick view at the moment. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 59. Isaiah chapter 59. It's getting close to the end of Isaiah, isn't it? Let's start in verse 1. Ready? It begins with behold. What does behold mean? Oops, Pay attention. This is really important, isn't it? Don't miss this. The Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy that it cannot hear. So when judgment comes, is it because God couldn't stop bad things from happening? No, that's not it. It says, but your iniquities, what's iniquities? Your lawlessness have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you. Give me a verse in Proverbs 28 9. Those who turn their ears away from hearing the Torah, even their prayers are what? An abomination, so that he will not hear. Verse 3 For your hands are defiled with blood. In your fingers with iniquity. Go down to verse 7. Their feet run to evil. And they make haste to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Wasting and destruction are in their pants. Does that sound like America of today? Do our feet run to evil in this country? Generally speaking, do they make haste to shed innocent blood? I know you guys follow the news and you're familiar with how our government works. But we give a lot of financial aid to other nations, right? We tie conditions to that money. And one condition is that they allow abortion on demand for anybody who wants it. So we not only pay through tax money for abortion in this country, we use our tax money to provide abortion around the world. Is God going to judge America for that? You know it. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. How many of you... 30 years ago, would have thought we would have drag queen shows in elementary schools. That we would have Satan clubs meeting in the schools after services. No, can't have a Christian service, but you can have a satanic service. Are our thoughts thoughts of iniquity? Let's go to Jeremiah chapter 19. What do you know about Jeremiah? Is the axe is falling, right? God's wrath is being poured out. And nobody's listening. listening. The prophet is calling for repentance and they want to put the prophet to death so he'll shut up, right? Seriously. 
Jeremiah chapter 19, verse 4. So we may as well start in verse 1 to get the context. See what God is, shall we say, angry at. Thus says the Lord, go and get a potter's earthen flask. What's earthen? It's out of clay. And take some of the elders of the people and some of the elders of the priests and go out to the valley of the son of Hinnom. What's going on in the Hinnom Valley? Sacrificing children to Moloch, which is by the entry of the potsherd gate, and proclaim there the words that I will tell you, and say, Hear the word of the Lord, O kings of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord of hosts. What kind of prophecy? In times prophecy. The God of Israel. Behold, I will bring such a catastrophe on this place that whoever hears of it, his ears will tingle. Because, here's why, because they have forsaken me and made this an alien place. Because they have burned incense in it to other gods whom neither they, their fathers, nor the kings of Judah have known. And have filled this place with the blood of the innocents. What blood of the innocents are they talking about? The children that are sacrificed to Moloch. What does God say he's going to do to Jerusalem because of that? So if God holds Jerusalem responsible, what will he hold America responsible for? Same thing. Same thing. The valley of Hinnom is what in Hebrew? Gehenna. Gehenom. In Greek it's Gehenna. That's where we get the English word hell. God says, remember what you did to those children. That's what's in store for you. Go to Joel chapter 3. In these days, it's moved beyond abortion. If you've been listening to the prophetic news, you know up in Canada, there are doctors saying that the most satisfying work they've ever been able to do, that is, they were abortion providers, it's even better now because Canada allows euthanasia. So one of these doctors that was being interviewed had put to death over 3,000 patients. And she said that is so much more fulfilling than aborting the babies to be able to kill a live, breathing person. Did she say why it's so much more fulfilling? No, but she's being honored by the UN and by people all over the world for her contributions to mankind. That's the world we live in. Joel chapter 3, verse 19. Yeah, Joel chapter 3, verse 19. But we're going to start in 18 for context because it tells us when this verse will be fulfilled. And it shall come to pass in that day, what day? Day of the Lord. That the mountains shall drip with new wine, the hills shall flow with milk. 
So when is this? We're talking about the kingdom, right? The messianic kingdom. All the brooks of Judah shall be flooded with water. That is no more famine, no more dry land. A fountain shall flow from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Acacias. That is rivers flow from under the throne of Messiah in the kingdom. But verse 19 says, Egypt shall be a desolation and a dome, a desolate wilderness because of violence against the people of Judah, for they have shed innocent blood in their land. Does Egypt and Edom fall under God's judgment in the tribulation period? Yes, and why? Because they have shed innocent blood. Verse 20 says, But Judah shall abide forever. And Jerusalem from generation to generation, for I will acquit them of the guilt of bloodshed, whom I had not acquitted, for the Lord dwells in Zion. So I wanted you to see this, that even the guilt of bloodshed can be forgiven. But forgiveness requires what? Repentance. A change of heart. And go to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 27. God said he would destroy Jerusalem because of the shedding of innocent blood, did he not? That's in the kingdom. That's after they've repented and come to God by faith. We saw back in Jeremiah chapter 19 that God would destroy Jerusalem for the crime of shedding of innocent blood. Look at Matthew chapter 27. We'll start in verse 1 for context. When morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people plotted against Yeshua to put him to death. And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate the governor. Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful, not repentant, but remorseful as different, and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? In other words, what? We don't care that you shed innocent blood. What has God told us back in chapter 19 of Deuteronomy about shedding innocent blood? If it's not taken care of, it defiles the whole land. Did Judah, or Judas as he's called here, was actually Judah in Hebrew. Did he cause the shedding of innocent blood? Yes. And the chief priests and the elders, were they responsible too? For the shedding of innocent blood? And did God destroy Jerusalem? Yes. Yeah. Hmm. I wish we in this country would learn from such things. Yes, ma'am. Could you go a little bit deeper? Verse 3, uh, my open Bible says, well, you made the remark that he was remorseful. Remorseful, not repentant. Not repent. Some versions say he repented, yes. but the Greek word is not repented. So it's not like he has come to confess his sin, repent of it, and come back to God. And you're talking on a spiritual level because I, I'm asking this. 
Um, it says in verse 4 that he said, I have sinned, but he was saying that to them, but are you saying that he, he didn't have Yes, I'm saying exactly that. Because what does the scripture say about Judas? He has a special place prepared in the lake of fire prim. That's how we know he did not repent. He felt bad. I mean, surely he knew enough of the scriptures to know that shedding innocent blood is a horrible sin against God. And he committed suicide. But did he hang himself or did he fall on a stake and break open? Yes. The answer is yes. The definition of hanging. Yes. The definition of hanging is not what you and I tend to think from the old Western movies where they take a rope and string you up. To be hung in those days was to be impaled. So when he's impaled on the stake, that is hanging in biblical terms. Like we say hung out to dry. Yeah. Danny and Susie ask, whoops, I'm sorry, it's private, never mind. They said, don't tell this. Yeah. Isn't there a reference back in Genesis maybe about Esau being sorry for what he did, but he found no place of repentance? Yep. No matter how much he begged for it. There, there's a, I mean, the idea of repentance is turning and, and doing, doing what God wants. You can be sorry you got caught. You can actually be sorry you did something, but you're not going to change your behavior. Right. So you're not repenting. Right. But you are uh, maybe remorseful that things didn't work out for you the way you wanted them to. Right. But that's still not setting your heart before God. Right. Some people get confused and think repentance means saying I'm sorry. Repentance is changing your life, not doing the sin again. When Messiah would say, go and sin no more, going and sinning no more is repentance. It's like your mom, when you were a kid, making you say, I'm sorry, you didn't mean it. <laughs> yeah. But you did say it. Right. Exactly right. So let's go back to Deuteronomy chapter 19, where verses 11 to 13 are a unit. Verses 11 to 13 say, but. So prior to this, it was, it was without knowledge and you didn't hate the person in the past. Verse 11 is, but what if you did? But if anyone hates his neighbor, lies in wait for him, rises against him and strikes him mortally so that he dies and he flees to one of these cities. So this man is a cold-blooded murderer, and he flees to the city of refuge. The question that follows is what? Do we just let him off? No. Verse 12 says, Then the elders of his city shall send and bring him from there. In modern parlance, what do we call that? Extradition, right? Come and bring him from there and deliver him over to the hand of the avenger of blood that he may die. So he got to the City of Refuge, he's had his trial and they decided you're a cold-blooded murderer. They send back to his own city and have the elders come get him and drag him back there and hand him over to the Avenger of Blood. And when the Avenger of Blood kills him, is the Avenger of Blood a murderer? No. no. Right, he's an executioner. He's not shedding innocent blood. 
And right there just shows you that God is not against the death penalty. <laughs> That's exactly what I put in my Bible right here. Those who stand outside of prisons holding signs, you shall not kill from the Ten Commandments, saying that this means the death penalty is immoral are incorrect. You had something to add. I was just going to say, somehow that seems to wipe to... I'm not thinking... I don't know what word to use, but sort of wipe the slate clean of the innocence. It removes the blood, the blood guilt. It removes the blood guilt from the land. That's right. exactly right. Yeah. God will not hold the entire nation responsible for that shedding of innocent blood because his commandments have been followed and it's been dealt with as God commanded. And look at verse 13. Your eye shall not pity him, but you shall put away the guilt of innocent blood from Israel that it may go well with you. When it says your eye shall not pity him, it means you can't give life in prison instead. You can't give a fine instead. You can't say, well, you know, we don't like killing, so we'll let it go this time. Suspend the sentence. No. It says those people standing outside with those protest signs are sinning. That's correct. Because they are showing pity that they have no right to show. That's correct. And they're using God's commandments wrongly to try and undo God's commandments. And that's the wrong thing to do. Yes. True enough. I am glad that I never had to witness anything like this. But it is the word of God. Now verse 14, we change topics. It's an entirely different topic. It has nothing to do with cities of refuge. It has to do with theft. Verse 14 says, you shall not remove your neighbor's landmark. What is that word for landmark? Gavul. Border. Border. So the word landmark and the word border are interchangeable in the scripture here. What it means is that which says this begins Daniel's property and ends my property. What happens if I move that marker six inches every year and he doesn't know? Pretty soon, I've got a whole lot of property. He doesn't have much. Is that theft? That's theft as much as if I came in and took his sheep. So verse 14, you shall not remove your neighbor's landmark, which the men of old have set. Because who gave the property as a permanent inheritance? God did. What right do I have to take what God gave him? The answer is none. Zip, zero. Means to steal your neighbor's land. Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 17. I know we haven't gotten to Deuteronomy 27 yet, but by the time we do, we will have forgotten this part probably. But Moses is having the people confirm these commandments. Yes, we heard it. Yes, we understood it. Yes, we will do it. Verse 17 says, Cursed is the one who moves his neighbor's landmark, and all the people shall say, Amen. Amen. Let me ask this. Is cursed a good thing or a bad thing? 
So put this on your list of things never ever to do. Let's talk about America again. Look at what is today called the land of Israel. What God calls Judea and Samaria, the United States calls the West Bank. And is telling Israel to give the Palestinians half of Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria as well as Gaza. What are we telling Israel to do? To remove the landmark. To take that which God gave permanently to Israel and give it to someone else. What right or authority do we have to tell Israel to ignore the word of God and commit atrocities against him? Do you think we are likely to get judged for this? Yep, let's go to Proverbs chapter 22. Does God mention this removing the landmark often? More often than most people realize. Proverbs chapter 22. Oops, I got some red marks out there. Let me go see what they are. Warren asked, was the incense they used in the valley the same incense they used in the temple, or do we know? The answer is no, it would not have been the same incense. It would have been the incense that they burned at the pagan temples, as they're taking part in pagan sacrifices. The incense used in the temple was a secret blend that wasn't known outside of temple services. And now that you've all forgotten who asked the question, the question had to do with Edom. What is Edom today? There are two interpretations of Edom. One is, is the southern part of what is today the kingdom of Jordan. Hashemite kingdom of Jordan. That's the physical area. But the children of Israel, when they see the word Edom, to them that means the Roman Catholic Church. Yes. They say the Edomites founded Rome, and more importantly, that Rome has continued the persecution of the Jewish people that used to be done by the descendants of Esau. I mean, for more than a thousand years at the Inquisition, what did they do to Jews? Killed them, put them to death, shed innocent blood. If anyone, Jew or Gentile, kept the Sabbath, they put him to death. If they refused to eat pigs, they put him to death. What is it that God is so mad at Edom about? The shedding of innocent blood. The Catholic Church just took the place. So they look at the end times prophecies as being against Catholicism. We'll just have to see whether their interpretation is correct. Don't they interpret all of Christianity as Catholicism though? Yes, they see all of Christianity as Catholicism. Yeah. One thing that they mentioned in the prophecy updates yesterday that I didn't realize is the Catholic Church considers all Protestants Catholics and all Muslims as Catholics. I didn't realize that they went that far in their view of the world. They should just consider everybody Catholic then. Well, since the word Catholic means universal, they kind of do. Hindus are Catholics. 
Yeah. The theory of the Edomites founding Rome, is that correct at all? I don't know. I mean, I don't know there's any historical evidence of that. I don't know. All the history of the founding of Rome I know is based upon legend. Rom Romulus and Remus, who were born from wolves, I think. I mean, raised by wolves. Okay, like I said, it's just legend. That's all I know. They were sacrificed by their parents who left them to die. And the wolves saved them and raised them? That's the story. Did it happen? I don't know. Let's go to Proverbs 22, verse 28. I can't remember if we read that or not. We didn't. Mercy and truth. Preserve the king. Wait a minute. I'm not in the right place, Sam. I nope. I quit turning pages and started talking. Proverbs. I never do that. Proverbs 22, verse 28. Do not remove the ancient landmark which your fathers have set. So even though those landmarks were established more than 400 years before the days of Solomon, still the commandment is do not remove the ancient landmarks. God gave a certain set of property to a certain set of people never to be disinherited. Which is interesting. They could sell it, but then it had to go back to the owner after a certain number of years. Right, right in the year of Jubilee, it's got to come back. So if you, or the year of release, anyway. So if you own some land adjacent to me and I wanted to buy part of it, we could work out a deal. That our but it's temporary. Our deal would be from this landmark, uh, 200 feet east, so that is the land that you just bought. But then that, it would be referenced to the landmark, not moving the landmark. Right, and it would be temporary. The land has to remain with me. Are we still sort of. I mean, we have landmarks in America, this geogenic survey stuff, got one near my house, and those are there. But, you know, that marks landlots and all that kind of stuff, so you can't move those. Right. I could tell you why, but it's classified, so you'd have to kill me then. <laughs> okay. All right. On to Proverbs chapter 23, verse 10. In my Bible, almost directly across the center line from the verse in chapter 22, do not remove the ancient landmark, nor enter the fields of the fatherless. That is, trying to take the property of widows and orphans. God does not appreciate that in the least. Hosea chapter 5. Hosea chapter 5. Let me see, I got a red one out there. Hope it's not about Edom, but it may be. Ah, okay. Hosea chapter 5, thank you. Chapter 5, verse 10. The princes of Judah, by that they don't mean the sons of the king. They mean the leaders, the commanders, those in charge. The princes of Judah are like those who remove a landmark. I will pour out my wrath on them like water. Oh, so how does God feel about removing landmarks? He's going to pour out his wrath on them. 
How many of you would like to be a recipient of God's wrath? Nothing. Me neither. Fortunately, we don't have to be. Let's go to Isaiah. Chapter 58. It tells us specifically who receives the protection of the Lord and who receives his wrath. Did I tell you which chapter yet? It's not 58, it's 65. It's actually 66. That's about as far as we can go. Yeah, we ran out of room there, didn't we? Yeah. There's good stuff in 58. There's good stuff in 65. But we really only need this one verse out of 66. It really just nails it down. The rest is background. Verse 14. When you see this, that is God comforting Jerusalem. Your heart shall rejoice, and your bones shall flourish like grass. The hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants, and his indignation, that's the za'am, to his enemies. What does this verse say about those who say that God's children must go through the tribulation period so God can pour his wrath out on them? It's contrary to the word of God, isn't it? Who receives God's wrath? His enemies, not his children. His discipline is received by his children. His chastisement and discipline are received by his children. Totally different. Yep. His children come under the category of which? His servants or his enemies? His servants. Just food for thought. So let's go back to Deuteronomy. Chapter 19. God is very serious about each of his commandments people that say you can pick and choose are they're not reading scripture very well because this doesn't sound like a very big issue of just trying to steal some land but, but in God's view God, it's God said you just messed up boy yeah. when wrath comes that, that's not the same thing as I'm upset that's exactly right who gave those landmarks God did. God did. That's the thing. They're taking away. They're trying to take away what God gave. Yeah, you're saying what God said is not important. And that's happening around the world because all this wokeism and the uh, changing the genders. And, I mean, de de redefining marriage. Anything to do with God, if it's not the reason for flipping it, is because it's related to God. Yeah. And that's the only reason. They yeah. don't need a reason. If it's in the Bible, do the opposite. Yep. Has it come to your attention in the news recently about the riots that are going on in Israel? Yes. Have you seen them or noticed yeah. them? Yeah. The government in Israel has gone to the right. And they're beginning to say, we need to follow God's commandments, not man's wishes. So there are people pouring out in the streets saying they're going to take away abortion. They're going to take away gay marriage. They're going to take away the LGBTQ's rights because they're going to follow God and not what we want. And that's what the riots are about going on in Israel right now. I wish we had that kind of issue going on in this country. But anyway, 
Verse 15, change topics again. In 15, 20, 21, we're going to see a lot of small topics or short topics. Not small in the eyes of God, just short in terms of verses. Verse 15 says, One witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. So, when you take someone to the court and say, I saw this man commit murder, and you're the only witness, what does the court do? The man is set free. People say, that's not fair. And I say, don't forget, God will judge one day. There's nothing. If you're the only one that sees someone murder, just keep your mouth shut. Yeah, there is nothing that escapes God's notice. In these days, in those days, you know, you're talking about witnesses or maybe even other types of evidence, but now, you know, there's the DNA evidence and there's the cell phone tracking and all that. Yeah. Would that be, would like those... Those circumstantial witnesses. Yeah, would that be part of the witness? Absolutely. Huh. Back in those days, no. No, but I mean, back in, you know, if we were to go by this law. If we were to follow this law today, we have an awful lot of people that have been convicted that would never have been. Circumstantial evidence is not a witness. It's not the same as a witness. We need an eyewitness who observed the crime. So, how many people have been convicted where there wasn't even a body found? So, OJ really didn't commit the crime. Let's. Let's not have any if the glove fits analogies or jokes or will he ever get married again? Will he take a stab at it? I don't know. We just we just won't go there. We just won't go there. I have no opinion about whether he was innocent or guilty. I was not there. If I were to put the machine on pause for a moment, but I won't. I was at the trial of Michael Jackson at his second trial. And it was clear he was not guilty. Michael Jackson, the singer. ABC. Never mind. Twice. Twice. Out in California, they tried to get him for sexually abusing children. I remember something. Yeah. But in the trial I observed, he clearly was not guilty. But the prosecutors just would go crazy every time they they lost every case. They kept trying and trying. Okay. Ignoring that because that's not Bible. Does the clock say 141? No. It's 1141. Okay. So verse 15, one witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or sin that he commits by the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. Go to Numbers chapter 20, number 35, Numbers chapter 35, Numbers chapter 35, verse Numbers chapter 35, verse 30. In Deuteronomy, it was less clear whether it applies to the offense of murder or not. 
in Numbers 35, it's very clear. Whoever kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death on the testimony of witnesses. But one witness is not sufficient testimony against a person for the death penalty. So there have to be at least how many witnesses? Two. Two. So would, if the person confessed? No. Person, a, person is not, their testimony is not considered valid whether they admit or deny. Okay. That's, that's part of the biblical Israeli law. What's that? That's for the death penalty. Like to be that's for any crime. Right. Always. So there are other punishments, just not death. For any punishment. For any punishment. Any punishment. There must be two or more witnesses. But that really puts our justice, justice system on its head. You know? That's how the yep. Clinton's got away with it. Yeah. Yep. Deuteronomy 17.6. We've already covered Deuteronomy 17.6, but... I want to remind us of what we saw there. Deuteronomy 17, verse 6. It's a recurring theme throughout the scripture in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Deuteronomy 17, 6. Whoever is deserving of death shall be put to death on the testimony of two or three witnesses. He shall not be put to death on the testimony of one witness. So to answer Ellie's question better, it says in the New Testament, all things must be established on the testimony of two or more. So not simply a death sentence. Now, back to Deuteronomy 19, verse 19. And why in the trial of Messiah did they have many false witnesses come forward, but they couldn't agree with each other? There wasn't a second witness because in Jewish thought only the second witness would be held responsible by God. Is that biblical? No. Let's read. Verse 19. Wait a minute. We didn't read 18 yet. 18. Wait a minute. That was 15. We have back up to 16. Oh. If a false witness rises against any man to testify against him of wrongdoing, that can't happen. Can't happen, because in Exodus 20, God said, Thou shalt not bear false witness against your neighbor. Because when you tell somebody they can't do something, then that man, uh, sin nature wants to rise up and do it. So even though God commanded not to bear false witness, there's still false witnesses. Yep, there still are. And that's an interesting word. It's not Hamas, it's violent. It's the word Hamas, which means violent, because when you testify against someone falsely, you're intending to do them harm, right? Yeah. So if, verse 16, if a false witness rise against any man to testify against him of wrongdoing, then both men in the controversy shall stand before the Lord. Before whom? The Lord. Who knows the heart? The Lord does. The Lord knows who's telling the truth and who's lying. It says, before the priests and the judges who serve in those days. And the judges shall make careful inquiry. And indeed, if the witness is a false witness who has testified falsely against his brother, you shall do to him as he thought to have done to his brother. So you shall put away the evil from among you. The Torah sages say this is the way this would take place. 
You've got two witnesses that come in and testify. I saw her commit murder. And as the court's about to sentence her to death, two others stand up and say, wait a minute, Your Honor. They couldn't have seen this. Those two witnesses were with us in Nazareth when this murder happened in Bethlehem. They could not possibly have seen this. Then the court would say, oh, you two, you're false witnesses. And whatever harm they intended to bring against her now takes place against them. It doesn't actually say if you're the only one, it doesn't count. No. That's just Jewish thought. It just, it just means that you won't necessarily receive the punishment on this earth. You may have to wait until God doles it out. When it says they stand before the Lord, does that mean that they can solve the Urim and the Thummim? They may well. Because mm -hmm. if you wanted in those days to know God's word, you would go to the high priest and they would use the Urim and Thummim and God would light up letters in the stones on the breastplate of the high priest to spell out the answer. It was a literal spelling out of the words. Yeah. Which is pretty cool. Let's see an example of false witnesses. Let's go to the book of Acts. We all know that Messiah had many false witnesses against him, but there never were two to agree. So how did they condemn Messiah? His own words. They used his own words in Jewish law, according to scripture. Not valid. Not valid. There are whole books written by lawyers on all the legal errors in the trial of Messiah. If you ever have trouble sleeping, read one. But go to Acts chapter 6. This is a point that I wish more people stopped to consider. I know all you all have, but most of Christendom has not. Let's start in verse 8. You remember the context of chapter 6 is the Hebrew-speaking Jews and the Greek-speaking Jews, they don't get along. And the apostles are all Hebrew-speaking Jews. So the Greek-speaking Jews, the Hellenists, are complaining that you all are neglecting our widows in daily food distributions. So they said, okay, pick out a number of Greek-speaking Jews to be in charge of this project. You'll look after your own. That way you can't complain about prejudice. One of those was Stephen. Was that true that that was happening? Yeah, I don't doubt it. <laughs> The Hebrew-speaking Jews did not like the Greek-speaking Jews. They considered them sellouts. Because remember what happened in Hanukkah? Even though brotherly love. Even though brotherly love, yeah. <laughs> Even the apostles had trouble with that. They really did. Where did the Greek-speaking Jews come from? Or were they in the land and simply adopted Hellenism? They adopted Hellenism at the time of Antiochus Epiphanes. They agreed to take the Greek language and... And learn to speak Greek, yep. The ones we see in the scriptures, many of them were from Alexandria, Egypt. Yeah. Like Luke. Stephen, it doesn't say where he was from, does it? No. Nope. 
note. One of them, verse 5, is from Antioch. But at any rate, verse 8, And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, so they're likely to be Greek speakers, and those from Cilicia and Asia disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. What are they accusing Stephen of, these false witnesses? Of teaching people not to keep God's commandments. What does the church today tell us that the apostles did? Taught people to break God's commandments. And what do we see here? They secretly induce men to say. But how do we know that they're not testifying truthfully? We just have to read on. Verse 12, And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, seized him, and brought him to the council. What council? The Sanhedrin. That's the court. They also set up false witnesses who said, this man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place, which is the temple and the Torah. What kind of witnesses? False witnesses. Did the early apostles and disciples teach that the commandments of God had been destroyed? No. That they'd been abolished? No. That they were no longer important? No. Give me a better proof than this. Paul says in Acts chapter 24, verse 17, or is it 14? Verse 14. Acts 24, 14. But this I confess to you that according to the way, that's what they first called the believers, which they call a sect, it was just another sect of Judaism, like Pharisees, Sadducees, and Essenes. So I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. You have Paul's own words. Which portion of the law did he believe? All of it. But back up a couple chapters. Brothers, you see how many myriads there are. Let's see. In chapter 21... Starting in verse 20. Acts 21, starting in verse 20. And when they heard it, that is that Paul had been sharing the gospel amongst the Gentiles and many have come to faith, they glorified the Lord and they said to him, You see, brother, how many myriads of Jews, that means at least 30,000 there in Jerusalem, which was about half the size of the city. How many myriads of Jews there are who have believed and they are all zealous for the Torah. So when you hear that the disciples and the apostles, when they got saved, repudiated the Torah and taught a new religion, that contradicts the scripture. They did not. Those allegations were made, but made by whom? False witnesses. Even in Acts 15, James made the decision, Gentiles keep these, do these. 
right? In Acts chapter 15, there are those four things that are necessary for table fellowship in verse 20. And the next verse is four, because Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city being read in the synagogues every Shabbat. So if you will avoid these four things that characterize pagan idolatry, you can come into the synagogues and study. Uh, a chuckle, but it, it's, it's a painful chuckle. Um, in the chapters coming up, we're going to read about prohibitions against cross-dressing. And I read some of the commentaries, and the first commentary I opened says this. Okay, so the Bible prohibited cross-dressing. That was in the Old Testament. None of those Old Testament laws apply to us. Just read Acts chapter 15, verse 20. This is all the Old Testament law that applies to Gentile believers. So we can murder. We can rape. We can steal. We can move landmarks. Any of you believe that? No. Ah. Let's go back to Deuteronomy. Why do people want to believe those kind of arguments? Because it allows them to continue in their sin. What did Israel want? They wanted so badly was to be God's children and yet continue to walk in their sin. What did they learn? Can't do that. So what does the church of today say? You can be saved, a child of God, and continue to walk in sin, and it's okay. Does God change? No. So back to Deuteronomy before I get preachy. Come on. Good. Chapter 19, we're up to verse 20. And those who remain shall hear and fear. That is, they will then realize that when God said, Thou shalt not bear false witness against your neighbor, what did he mean? Men don't do it. And hereafter they shall not again commit such evil amongst you. And look at verse 21. Your eye shall not pity. Life shall be for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Whatever you intended the court to do to that person will happen to the false witnesses. When it says your eyes shall not pity, it means there are no suspended sentences. There are no fines substituted. Like what? Baal Pelwar, got it. Mm-hmm. If Phineas had not done what he did by throwing the javelin and executed justice right then and there, how like think about how quickly that plague would spread throughout the children of Israel. Right, the plague stopped the minute he executed God's judgment. Right. So it's like look how look at the nation, look at our nation, look at the mm-hmm. world today, because these yeah. When we ignore the commandments of God, um, we have things like COVID. 
like flu, like famines, like plagues, bird flu. They just said a dozen eggs out in California is about eight bucks because bird flu has destroyed tens of millions of chickens in this country. What if we straightened up and followed God's commandments? Do you think these judgments might stop? Yeah, first. Yeah, they are calls for repentance. So on to chapter 20. Entirely new topic. It's time for war. In Hebrew, the word for war and battle is the same word. When you go out to battle against your enemies and see horses and chariots and people more numerous than you, do not be afraid of them. Do not be afraid of them. Really? That's what God said. It says, For because the Lord your God is with you, brought you up from the land of Egypt. What does fear of the enemy indicate a lack of? Faith. So if you go into battle at the Lord's command and you're afraid you can't win, who do you think doesn't have the power? You think God can't do it. That's not good. So, verse 2, so it shall be when you're on the verge of battle, hasn't started, it's about to, that the priest shall approach and speak to the people and he shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, today you are on the verge of battle with your enemies. Do not let your heart faint, do not be afraid, and do not tremble or be terrified because of them. For, because, the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. So before battle, sanctioned by God, the priest is to come and address the soldiers and say, God said, do not be afraid. Because fear shows a lack of faith. Why would that be a problem? To send a bunch of faithless soldiers into battle. Going to get whooped. Yeah. Will God be with the faithless? No. So if you want God to go with you and you want God to carry the battle, do not be afraid. Put your faith and confidence in the Lord your God. And then in verses 5 to 8, God's going to tell us specifically, here are people that need to go home before the battle starts. Just send them home. Verse 5 says, Then the officers shall speak to the people, saying, What man is there who has built a new house and has not dedicated it? Let him go and return to his house, lest he die in a battle and another man dedicate it. So all you have to do is stand up and go, oh, oh, wait a minute, I just built a new house. And the commander's going to say, go home. You don't have to fight in a battle, go home. Number six, also what man is there who has planted a vineyard and has not eaten of it? Let him go and return to his house, lest he die in a battle and another man eat of it. So another group of people are going to go, wait, wait, that's me, I'm going home. 
Number seven, what man is there is betrothed to a woman and has not married her? Let him go and return to his house, lest he die in the battle, and another man marry her. The army's getting smaller and smaller. When you go into battle, don't you want the army to get bigger and bigger? This is not a problem. God plus one is a majority, and God doesn't need to one. Sounds just like Gideon, doesn't it? Where God kept saying, you got too many. That's what God's saying here. Any of y'all want to go home? Go home. Is Israel's victory dependent upon how many men they have in their army? The answer is no. Verse 8. Then the officers shall speak further to the people and say, What man is there who is fearful and faint-hearted? Let him go and return to his house. Does the heart of his brethren faint like his heart? Yeah, we don't want cowardice to spread. We don't want faithlessness to spread. Let's go to the book of Judges. Chapter 7. Judges, chapter 7. Wayne, I, yes, I'm, I, I believe there's a lot of underlying truth in, in this passage in 20 about if we're not willing to go to war because we lack the faith or whatever, if we're not willing to die for what we say we believe in, that's why the Lord wants to call out all those who, who are weak in the faith or whatever the situation might be. Mm -hmm. But we have to be willing to put our lives on the line and to be willing to die for what we... As the scripture says, and love not their lives to the death. We have to be willing to die for our faith. Just think back to Hanukkah. Remember the story about Hannah and her children? How they were told, you can save your lives. All you have to do is reject the Lord. And they died one right after the other. Come the tribulation period, that's going to be a common thing. Where the false Messiah's people are going to catch someone and say, renounce Messiah now or die. If you announce Messiah now, then you're eternally lost. Judges, chapter 7, verse 3. Somebody mentioned Gideon. Here's Gideon. Verse 3. Did they put this principle into operation? They sure did. Now therefore proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and afraid, let him turn and depart at once from Mount Gilead. And 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. There were 32,000 soldiers, and 22,000 said, I'm a coward, I'm going home. That's a little over two-thirds. So did Gideon lose the battle because he didn't have enough men? No. God still said you got too many. Let's whittle it down. And they whittle it down to how many? 300. Out of 32,000, Gideon went to battle with 300. And how did the battle go? It went well. It went well because God was in the midst of it. 
So Gideon said, this is what God said. I'm going to have faith. I'm going to do it. The people left. He said, I don't care. We're going to battle because God's with us. And they whooped them. Didn't even have a weapon, but they had the word of God. Yeah. Deuteronomy chapter 20. We're up to verse 9. And so it shall be when the officers, that word officers is the Hebrew word sar, which means commander or chief, have finished speaking to the people that they shall make captains. That's what the word is sare, chiefs of or commanders of, of the armies to lead the people. So the word captains there is sare, that one. Not that you cared, but verse 10. When you go near a city to fight against it, then proclaim an offer of peace to it. This is a commandment of God. You cannot attack a city without first giving it the opportunity to surrender. I'm sorry? Did not David do that? Do what? He killed every man, woman, and child in a bunch of cities. I, I never read that he said, hey, you can surrender to us if you want. But since he was a man after God's own heart and obedient to the commandments, we can assume he did, even if it doesn't tell us. Except where God told him to go kill every man, woman, and child. Yeah, it just sounds like when you read the stories, they didn't always follow these things. Yeah, but David tended to. You know, if you think about the Lord told Saul to go kill all the Amalekites. Right. He told the Kenites, get out of town before this all happens. Because if you stay here, you're going to be... Yeah, because of this verse. Right. Yeah. So he didn't tell the Amalekites that. Right. Kenites that. Right. So when the Lord says, destroy them all, every man, woman, and child, that's different. So verse 10, when you go near a city to fight against it, then proclaim an offer of peace to it. And it shall be that if they accept your offer of peace and open to you, that is, they literally open the gates and say, come on in, then all the people who are found in it shall be placed under tribute to you and serve you. What does it mean they'll be under tribute to you? They'll be subservient, but more than that... They're going to pay you taxes, right. They are going to be subservient to you. They're going to obey you. They're going to accept you as king over them. And they're going to pay you taxes. Show me which government does not like taxes. But verse 12, now if the city will not make peace with you, but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. Does this, do these rules here apply to the cities? Of the pagans in the land of Israel? No. The answer is no. These are the cities outside of Israel. That, for instance, down in Gath, they would uh, bring raiding parties against Israel. And Israel would have to go out to fight. They would first make an offer of peace. You won't accept the peace, then die. So verse 12, now if the city will not make peace with you, but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. What does it mean to lay siege to a city? Block off all commerce in and out. Block off all commerce in and out? Surround it? Well, what happens? They can't come or go. 
They can't come or go, but where's the crops? Where's the food? Where's the water usually? Outside. So if you're under siege, you're eventually going to get really hungry and thirsty. And then what are your choices? Surrender or die. Verse 13, and when the Lord your God delivers it into your hands, you shall strike every male in it with the edge of the sword. Why only the men? Because who are the soldiers? The men are the soldiers, not the women and children. Well, what about when a widow would bring up her child secretly to hate and come back in rebellion later. Let's keep on reading. So verse 13 says, strike every male in with the edge of the sword. But the women, the little ones, that's the children, the livestock and all that is in the city, all its spoil you shall plunder for yourself. So you can take the women as wives, as servants. You can take the children as servants. And you shall eat the enemy's plunder which the Lord your God gives you. Now how do we know it doesn't apply to those pagan cities in the land of Israel? Let's look at verse 15. Thus you shall do to all the cities which are very far from you. What does very far from you mean? Not in the land, right. Which are not of the cities of these nations. But of the cities of these peoples, which the Lord your God gives you as inheritance, you shall let nothing that breathes remain alive. What's he mean by nothing that breathes? Men, women, children, animals, all gone. Because otherwise they bring pagan idolatry into Israel. Yeah. Verses 16 to 18 now talk about the land of Canaan, which becomes called the land of Israel. Let me check the time and the red dots. Okay. Verse 16. But of the cities of these peoples, that's the Amorites and the other ites of Genesis chapter 15, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance, you shall let nothing that breathes remain alive. But you shall utterly destroy them, the Hittite, and the Amorite, and the Canaanite, and the Perizzite, and the Hivite, and the Jebusite, just as the Lord your God has commanded you, lest. What's that word lest mean? If you don't, here's what's going to happen. Because people read and go, that's not fair, God's mean. No, he's not mean. There's a reason, and here it is. Lest they teach you do according to all their abominations, which they have done for their gods, and you sin against the Lord your God. What happens if the children of Israel learn the ways of the pagans? Their heart goes from God very quickly. Does God say, well, that's okay. You're, you're my children. I'll accept some pagan idolatry. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 12. Verse 
God's already told them, don't you learn the ways of the pagans. And what happened when Solomon married all those pagan wives? Turned his heart from God, and he even sacrificed some of his children. Deuteronomy 12, verse 1 through 4, These are the statutes and judgments which you shall be careful to observe in the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. You shall utterly destroy all the places where the nations which you shall dispossess serve their gods, on the high mountains and on the hills and on ev under every green tree. You shall destroy their altars, break their sacred pillars, and burden their wooden images with fire. You shall cut down the carved images of their gods and destroy their names from that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God with such things. So in the eyes of God, when somebody rejects the Lord our God in favor of pagan idolatry, they've made their choice. They've sealed their fate. The judgments and wrath that's going to get poured out on them is whose fault? It's their own. Still doesn't make it easy, does it? Let's go on to verse 19. When you besiege a city for a long time while making war against it to take it, you shall not destroy its trees by wielding an axe against them. If you can eat of them, do not cut them down to use in the siege, for the tree of the field is man's food. Only the trees which you know are not trees for food you may destroy and cut down to build siege works against the city that makes war with you until it is subdued. So can you cut down an olive tree to use it in the siege? How about a date palm? No. How about a sycamore tree? No. Sycamore is a poor quality fig, but it's still a fruit bearing tree. Technically, if Israel were to suddenly turn to God right now, they should destroy all the Catholic churches, all the foreign god worshiper temples, things like that should be destroyed throughout Israel, and then only synagogues would remain. Would that not be applying these principles? Not we shall God, see. If that happens, God will give them direction. That's right. And that may be the direction, but we'll see. <sighs> Chapter 21. Yeah, this really is in contrast to what the pagans did. I mean, they would go chop everything down, burn it, destroy it. Just what did the Romans do? Did they cut down only the non-food-bearing trees, or did they cut them all? Did they plow the ground with salt? So that nothing would grow? Did they care about God's law? No. They did not. Chapter 21. If anyone is found slain, lying in the field in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess, 
and is not known who killed him. So what's this talking about? Somebody's out walking through a field and comes across a dead body. How about if he had a heart attack and died? Same thing. Nah, that's not what we're talking about. Somebody that's obviously been murdered. Blood or bruises, busted bones. Yeah. Normally, large amounts of blood coming out of the body, such things. But it notices if anyone is found slain, not just dead, but slain. And it's not known who killed him. Then, oh, and number one, I should say, this applies only in the land of Israel. So we don't have to worry about walking through the fields of Jasper and finding a dead body and doing this. Okay. Verse 2, then your elders and your judges shall go out and measure the distance from the slain man to the surrounding cities. So all of the surrounding cities that may be closest send their leaders out to measure. Why? Because there's something required of the city that is the closest. Verse 3, and it shall be that the elders of the city nearest to the slain man will take a heifer. Wish they hadn't used that word. The word in Hebrew is eglah, and it means a calf. A calf. When we talk about the red heifer in Numbers chapter 19, does it literally say a red heifer? It says a red cow. Para Adama. Egla is a calf. And here they're talking about a female calf. That's why they use the word heifer, meaning one who's not given birth. Well, it's too young to give birth if it's an egla. If it's old enough to give birth, it's a para. That's why when they talk about the, the slaying of the red heifer, they've got to wait till it's ex old. Because it's not got to be no longer an egla, but it's got to be a para, not a calf, but a cow. Take a heifer which has not been worked and which has not pulled with the yoke. The elders of that city shall bring the heifer down to a valley with flowing water. What do we call flowing water? Living water. Mayim Chayim. What does it represent? The Holy Spirit which is neither plowed nor sown. Why is that significant? The valley has to be neither plowed nor sown. If you shed blood, what's in blood? Salt. So what does the blood do to the ground? It would contaminate it. It would damage the crops that are there, but the crops might absorb some of the blood. What did God say about eating blood? No, 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 no. So they shall break the heifer's neck there in the valley. The words for break the heifer's neck can mean to sever like with a sword or with an axe. So there's going to be blood. But who has to do this? Not the priests. It's not a sacrifice. Verse 4 says the elders of that city. The elders, the ones who are responsible for leading and organizing and protecting the city. Verse 5, then the priests, 
Now the priests step in. Then the priests, the sons of Levi, shall come near. For the Lord your God has chosen them to minister to him and to bless in the name of the Lord. By their word, every controversy and every assault shall be settled. So they're coming for what purpose? The calf's dead. They're coming to be judges. Verse 6. And all the elders of that city nearest to the slain man shall wash their hands over the heifer whose neck was broken in the valley. Then they shall answer and say, Our hands have not shed this blood, nor have our eyes seen it. Who are they saying that to? They're saying it to the priests who are acting as judge on God's behalf. So they're there to judge the, the veracity of these statements. So what must the elders affirm before God? Our hands have not shed this blood, nor have our eyes seen it. If you see the sin committed, what must you do? You must be a witness. God does not allow you to witness it and close your eyes and say, I ain't telling. If you witness an event, you must be a witness to the event. They're saying, we did not do this, and we didn't see who did it. If there's no witnesses, can you convict somebody? No, but we have the guilt of innocent blood on the land. So what do we do? Innocent blood's been shed, but we don't know by whom. So they wash their hands over the slain calf. They make the solemn declaration before God to the priests. We know from Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira, what happens when you lie to God, right? So verse 8 says, Provide atonement, O Lord, for your people Israel, whom you have redeemed, and do not lay innocent blood to the charge of your people Israel. And atonement shall be provided on their behalf for the blood. So this is the way you remove the stain of innocent blood. When there's no way to know who is responsible. And therefore no one can pay the price. Let's see. Sam asks, is this why Pontius washed his hands after examining Yeshua? Yes, it is. He's exactly right. He was saying, I am innocent of this innocent blood. Yes, sir. Okay, so we're talking about breaking the egg, and that's behead. Is that the same term used when back when you uh, have a firstborn ass or something, donkey, that you would And you won't redeem it. it, you must break its neck? Yes. Yeah. You know what? So animal, it's got to die. I want to tell you something. An animal like that, I don't. If it over a couple of hundred pounds, you're not gonna bend its neck to break. <laughs> you, know, you, you know, so so it's you, you'd have to sever it with a big heavy instrument. And then you do see the blood, right? Yeah. But they they said that we didn't see this blood. The blood of the dead man, not of the calf. <laughs> no, talking about the blood of the dead man. Yeah, but you have to think about the whole context when it says this blood. What does this refer back to? Yes, Rachel. Uh, 
one to ask, Pontius Pilate, even though he washed, washed his hands, he still sent the to die, so he's still guilty, correct? Let's let God be judge. Okay. But I won't. I don't want to stand next to him on judgment day. Yes, thank you. Yeah. Yeah, to be the judge and stand there and go, well, this guy's innocent, but go kill him anyway. Yeah, I don't want to be in his shoes come judgment day. Mm-mm. So we're back to chapter 21. Verse 9. So you shall put away the guilt of innocent blood from among you when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. When you do what is right in the sight of the Lord means you're obedient to the commandments of God here. You do what God commanded. God will atone for that innocent blood. What does it mean to atone? To cover over. Come judgment day, God knows who killed the man, right? Don't think for a minute God's going to let him off the hook. So verse 9. Obedience to these commandments is a demonstration of the innocence of these people. And I want to look a little more at the concept of innocent blood. We took a short look a minute ago. I want to take a deeper look. I want to go first to Deuteronomy chapter 19. Just to refresh ourselves. Let me bring my note a little closer. Verse 11. And let's just remind ourselves that if anyone hates his neighbor, lies in wait for him, and rises against him, and strikes him mortally so that he dies, what has he done? He's committed murder, but he's also committed the sin of innocent blood. Innocent blood. Let's go to 1 Samuel chapter 19. First Samuel chapter 19. David's just killed Goliath. Was that shedding innocent blood? No, it was not. First Samuel 19 verse 5. Saul wants to kill David. Verse 5 says, For he took his life in his hands and killed the Philistine. And the Lord brought about a great deliverance for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood to kill David without a cause? That's what it is to shed innocent blood, is to kill without a cause. Meaning the innocent person who died has done nothing that God said requires the death penalty. That's where you look at abortion and go, what did that child do? What crime or sin did that child commit? The answer is none. In the Torah, do you remember when it talks about two men fighting and one strikes a pregnant woman such that she miscarries the child and it dies? What does the scripture say? He's the one who struck her by us. It says, a life for a life, right? Mm-hmm. 
That's not what the Hebrew says. It says nephesh for nephesh, a soul for a soul. God says that unborn child has a soul. So that should end the debate about is it a child or is it a lump of flesh, like a tumor. First Kings chapter two, verse thirty one. Not off the top of my head at the moment. Yep. Exodus 21. That's right. We can turn back and see exactly the verse. I just think that's a good verse for me to remember to use. It is. Okay. Since Daniel gave us the verses, we'll accept it and go on to 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 31. First Kings chapter 2, verse 31. Who's king? Solomon. Joab has shed innocent blood, right? So in 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 31, it says, Then the king said to him, Do as he has said, and strike him down and bury him that you may take away from me and from the house of my father the innocent blood which Joab shed. Since Joab shed innocent blood, what did God say must be done? Joab's life must be forfeit. And that's why Solomon says, you've got to strike him down to remove the guilt of innocent blood from me and from the house of my father. 2 Kings chapter 21. Occasion will come across a commandment like killing your own children when they're, well, we're going to find out what they do. Those commandments were never followed through. Children were never put to death, according to the ancient sages. But this shedding of innocent blood, these commandments were carried out. 2 Kings 21. I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. 21 verse 16. Was Manasseh a good king or a bad king? Terrible king. Verse 16 it says, Moreover Manasseh shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another. Besides his sin by which he made Judas sin in doing evil in the sight of the Lord. Is this part of why Israel goes into captivity? Yep, yep it is. Second Kings 24. Verse 4. We'll start in verse 1. In his days, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up, and Jehoiakim became his vassal for three years. So the Lord lets Babylon begin to oppress Judah. Why? Let's look over at verse 4. And also because of the innocent blood that he had shed. He being Manasseh. 
for he had filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, which the Lord would not pardon. Why would the Lord not pardon it? Because those who shed innocent blood were not held accountable. Why, just notice, I have gone over time. I am so sorry. If you remind me next week, we'll quit a little early. All right, so we'll pick up next week, Lord willing, continuing in chapter 21, verse 9.